question. Is there ever a time when it's right to boast? Is there ever a time when jealousy is a good thing? The Apostle Paul answers those questions with yes and yes. There is a time when it's right to boast, and there is a time when jealousy is a good thing. Now just to back up a little bit, we saw last week that Paul has a fight on his hands. It's a fight for the hearts and minds of the Corinthian believers. Paul is not in Corinth, obviously he's writing them a letter, At this point, he's preaching the gospel in Macedonia, which is to the north of Corinth. And in Paul's absence, outsiders have come into the Corinthian church. They're trying to take over the church, and they seem to be having some success. One of their tactics is to turn the church against Paul. Paul founded the church in Corinth. Its foundation was the good news about Jesus, the gospel. As Paul preached the gospel, God's power worked through the message. Men and women found new life in Jesus. But Paul knows what will happen if these outsiders take over the church. If they succeed in turning the church against Paul, they'll also turn the church away from Paul's message. Because these teachers have a different message. And so in chapters 10 to 13 of 2 Corinthians, Paul wades into the fight. We saw last week, Paul does not love to fight, but he's willing to fight. For the sake of the gospel and the honor of God and the good of the church, Paul will take on these intruders. Now it has to be said that these final chapters of the letter are not easy. They may seem quite hard for us to relate to. Because we're listening in on a very specific church situation. How can we connect with this? Well, I think the points of connection for us are Paul's concern for God's honor and his love for Christ's church. Our situation is different from Paul's, but as we listen to Paul we see into the heart and mind of a man who cares deeply about the church. And we see what it looks like to fight for the church in a God-glorifying way. Those are the things that you and I can take and apply to our own situation. So if you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll pick up at verse 12, which is on page 1164. And we'll read through to chapter 11, verse 15. Chapter 10, verse 12. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who command themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits but we'll confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope 
is that as your faith continues to grow, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory. But let him who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commands himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. This is God's word. And this passage of God's word is about boasting and jealousy for God's glory. Is there ever a time when it's right to boast? Paul believes there is. It all depends on what kind of boasting you do. In chapter 10, verses 12 to 18, Paul talks about the right kind of boasting. It seeks God's glory, not self-promotion. The word boast keeps coming up in chapters 10 to 13. I counted it 15 times. Five of those are here in our passage. It's a key word in these chapters. And as Paul uses the word, he makes it clear there's a right and a wrong way to boast. He begins by saying in chapter 10, verse 12, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who command themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Paul finds himself in a difficult situation. In order to fight for the Corinthians, 
He has to convince them they should listen to him instead of listening to the intruders who are trying to take over. So Paul has to give some sort of self-defense. That's part of the fight he finds himself in. And yet Paul knows that self-promotion or self-commendation is a foolish game to play. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he said, it doesn't really matter what you think of me, nor does it really matter what I think of myself. The opinion that counts is God's. It matters what he thinks of me. And yet, here Paul finds himself in a situation where he has to fight for the Corinthians' opinion of him in order to get them to listen to his message. The big challenge that Paul faces is to offer some self-defense without crossing over into self-commendation. And you and I live in a time when boasting about yourself is seen as normal and positive. We're expected to sell ourselves in the job market. We're encouraged to be self-confident and self-assertive. So how do we reconcile that with the Bible's call to be meek and gentle? On the other hand, sometimes Christians have a reputation for being pushovers having as much backbone as a plate of spaghetti. How do we reconcile that with the Bible's call to wage war? Well, this passage and the passages to come, we find Paul helping us. We discover that he doesn't find it easy to get this balance right. The awkwardness that he feels comes out in his writing. But by seeing how Paul dealt with his specific situation, we can learn how to approach our own situations. In verse 13, Paul says, We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. The point Paul is making is this. I can point to a special assignment given to me by Jesus. He gave me a field of service, an area of service. He sent me out as an apostle or a messenger to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Paul says it was in obedience to that assignment that I ended up in the city of Corinth. I shared the gospel and through me God set up the church in Corinth. He says in verse 14, we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. And in verses 15 and 16, Paul says, I want to continue taking the gospel to other Gentile places. That's one reason that I want to see you Corinthians firmed up in your faith. Because I'm looking for your help as I branch out into new areas where the gospel hasn't gone yet. Now, in what Paul says about himself, we can see how differently his opponents are working. They did not set up the church in Corinth. In fact, they're not interested in putting in any kind of hard graft. They're not interested in breaking new ground for the gospel. They just want to step into Corinth, take over the work that Paul set up, and then boast about how great they are. 
And Paul is certainly comparing himself to these intruders when he says in the middle of verse 16, For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory, but let him who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commands himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. Paul knows that he is treading a fine line as he enters into this fight. Self-defense is necessary to protect his ministry from those who want to destroy it. But he's equally convinced that self-promotion and self-exaltation are unacceptable. So Paul is very careful to make sure that any boasting he does is boasting that ultimately points to God and to God's power and goodness. That's the difference between Paul and his opponents. They are after praise for themselves. Paul is after praise for God. His goal is to glorify God and to have God's commendation. He doesn't really care about anyone else's commendation. What we've learned so far is that it's a mistake to think there's no place for self-defense in the Christian life. It is not true that we're called to do nothing but lie down and be walked over. However, and this is the crucial point, very often when we enter into self-defense, We do it for the wrong reason. Our real motivation is self-promotion. Trying to prove how good and worthy we really are. Trying to earn some praise for ourselves. But Paul is showing us a better way. Self-defense for the sake of God's glory. Boasting is not wise if we're doing it for human praise. Because it's only praise from God that really matters. But boasting is appropriate if it leads to God being praised. And so when you and I are attacked in some way or put down or misunderstood or misrepresented, the question to ask ourselves is, how can I bring praise to God in this situation? Can I do it best by ignoring this offense? Or do I really need to respond to this offense? It's not always easy to answer that question. But we have to ask it because it will help us to be honest about our motives. Do we just want personal vindication in the situation? Or are we seeking God's glory in the situation? I can think of examples where Christians have been misrepresented in some way And they have chosen to stay silent. They've made no effort to defend themselves. And God has honored that. But equally, I can think of other situations where Christians have been misrepresented and they've chosen to speak up and defend themselves. They have tried to put the record straight. And God has honored that. It's always a judgment call for us. We need to pray for discernment. We need to be aware that different situations will need different responses from us. Paul himself sometimes refused to defend himself. There's no one rule for every situation. But as we decide how to react, 
we need to be constantly checking our motives. If I'm going to stay silent, is it really out of the fear of man? Do I need to take courage and speak up for God's glory? On the other hand, if I'm going to defend myself, what is my real motivation? Is it just self-defense? Or is it self-defense for God's glory? If we decide that it's just self-defense, then we should hold back from doing it. As he moves into chapter 11, Paul gives us some help about getting our motives right. The beginning of chapter 11, he talks about the right kind of jealousy. It seeks to protect Christ's bride. Chapter 11, verse 1. I hope you'll put up with a little of my foolishness, but you were already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. When Paul says in verse 1, I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, his point is, I feel foolish entering into this self-defense. It's pretty embarrassing for me. I know that my self-defense could be mistaken for self-promotion. But here I go. I'm willing to do it because, verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Today, we tend to think of jealousy as a purely negative thing. And it can be a negative thing, but in Scripture, it can also be positive. Notice Paul says he's jealous for them, not jealous of them. If you're jealous of someone, you envy them. You resent them for what they have. Maybe their possessions or their position in life. And you want those things for yourself. To be jealous of someone is a purely negative thing. But to be jealous for someone is different. In that case, it's the person you want, not the things that they have. And of course, that can be negative. It can lead to the kind of fearful jealousy that worries about losing the other person. It can lead to a controlling dominance or manipulation of the other person. That's true. But it's also true that it can be a very good thing to be jealous for someone. For example, it is good and healthy and honorable for me to be jealous for my wife. If some other rival comes along, you can be sure I'm going to tell him to get lost. Megan and I are in a marriage covenant together. And I will fight to protect that covenant against anyone who tries to break it up or to come between us. In an exclusive relationship like marriage, a certain kind of jealousy is necessary if the relationship is going to succeed. What kind of husband would I be if I invited rivals into our house and served them coffee while they tried to seduce my wife? Well, it turns out this good kind of human jealousy points us to the good jealousy God has for his people. In the Old Testament, he rescued the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. 
and he entered into a covenant with them so that they would be his people and so that he would be their God. That phrase comes up again and again in the Old Testament. You will be my people and I will be your God. And having entered into that covenant, that exclusive relationship, God is rightly jealous for his people. He will not tolerate rivals. He will not turn a blind eye to those who try and disrupt the relationship between God and his people. And this is developed in the New Testament. We saw it earlier in our reading from Ephesians. The relationship between Christ and his church is referred to as a marriage. Of course Christ is going to be jealous for his church. Of course he's going to fight any rivals who try and steal her affections away from him. Here in our passage, Paul has the same picture in mind. But he takes it all back a stage. He pictures the Corinthian fellowship as promised to Christ, literally betrothed to Christ. Now, betrothal in the ancient world was not the same as what we think of as engagement. Today, engagement can be a pretty informal thing. But in Paul's day, betrothal was a formal marriage contract. If you were betrothed to someone, you were legally husband and wife. Even though the actual consummation of the marriage was still in the future at that point. That consummation happened when the wife left her father's house and moved in with her husband. And what that meant was, if you wanted to get out of a betrothal, there had to be a formal divorce. That explains something that we read every Christmas and maybe don't quite understand. At the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we're told that Mary was pledged or betrothed to Joseph. Then when Joseph found out that she was pregnant, we read, he planned to divorce her quietly. We might read that and think, well, why not just refuse to marry her? But the point is, he was already legally married to her, even though the marriage hadn't been consummated. And that's the picture here in our passage at the beginning of chapter 11. The Corinthian church is betrothed to Christ. But the marriage has not yet been consummated. In other words, Christ has not yet returned. His bride has not yet gone to be with him. Now, in ancient marriage, the bride's father had a very important role to play. During this period of betrothal, before the wife moved in with her husband, it was the father's responsibility to protect the virginity of his daughter. He had the responsibility of fighting off any rivals that came along. He was to deliver his daughter to her husband in a pure state. And here, Paul pictures himself in the role of the bride's father. The Corinthians are promised to Christ. One day they will be presented to Christ. They will go to be with him. And in the meantime... Paul has the responsibility to defend the church from rivals, from other potential lovers 
who would try to steal her away from Christ. In verse 2 he says, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul is rightly jealous for the Corinthian church. He doesn't want them for himself. He wants them for Christ. And until they are with Christ, Paul will fight to keep them pure for Christ. So the jealousy that Paul feels is not a self-seeking jealousy. It's a jealousy that longs to honor God and protect his bride. Someone has said that Paul's jealousy reflects the heart of God. His jealousy is a godly jealousy. And as Christians, this is the kind of jealousy we should have for one another. This is the kind of jealousy church leaders should have for the members under their care. Do you care about the spiritual condition of the brothers and sisters around you? Are you concerned about the temptations that they face? If we are a body of people who have little concern about each other's purity, if we as church leaders refuse to poke our noses into people's lives, then we're not being respectful. We're not being loving. We're neglecting the responsibility we have for each other. We ought to have a godly jealousy for one another. To see one another finally delivered safely to Christ. We ought to be active to help our brothers and sisters resist the sins that would seduce them away from Christ. So don't be resentful if the elders or if your home group leader or another brother or sister start showing a concern about what's going on in your life. It's our responsibility to do that. We want to see you delivered to Christ in one piece, not ravished by other lovers. If we ever become a church where people can come and go and never be drawn into the kind of relationships where people are jealous for their relationship with Christ, if we ever get like that, then we will be failing as a church. Now, I know some people refuse or avoid that kind of fellowship, but we ought to make it hard for them to avoid it because we all need it. In the case of the Corinthians, Paul is beginning to fear the worst. It looks like in Paul's absence, they are being seduced away from Christ. Verse 3, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, You put up with it easily enough. The Corinthians are putting up with these rivals who are leading them away from Christ. They're being dazzled and seduced 
by these impressive-looking, impressive-talking new faces. But Paul suggests that behind the appearances lies the devil himself. It was the devil who seduced Eve away from devotion to God. And Paul can see the same source at work here. You make that even more clear later on. But here in these verses, he also points to the specific issue. These new arrivals in Corinth are preaching a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel from the Jesus, the spirit, and the gospel they received from Paul. We can't be sure how exactly their teaching differed from Paul's, but it must have been pretty subtle because they're still talking about Jesus, the Spirit, and the Gospel. And usually, the more dangerous and seductive false teaching is the kind that is subtly false. If someone comes and denies Jesus' deity or denies the resurrection, we wouldn't give them a hearing. That teaching would be blatantly and obviously false. But if someone comes and starts teaching us about the deeper secret of the all-conquering Christian life, which usually means the healthy and wealthy Christian life, or if some teaching comes along that says that God is a little less than completely sovereign, Or if some teaching comes that suggests, well, maybe parts of Scripture are outdated today. Those kinds of things can be a lot more seductive to us because they're subtle. They're still using Christian language. And they're brought often in the name of Jesus and the Spirit and the Gospel. In the case of the Corinthians, whatever the false teaching was exactly, they were putting up with it. And that arouses Paul's godly jealousy. It motivates Paul to more self-defense. It's self-defense with the aim of winning them back from these rivals to sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Verse 5. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Who were the super apostles? Well, some people have wondered if they might be the true apostles, including Peter, James, and John. If that's the case, if that's what Paul means, then he's saying... Just because I wasn't one of Jesus' disciples during his lifetime, that doesn't make me any less trustworthy. And that understanding is a possibility. But I think here in the context, it is much more likely that Paul is using super apostles as a tongue-in-cheek reference to the intruders at Corinth. They give the appearance of being super compared to Paul with his human limitations. But later, Paul will call them false apostles. These super apostles may be more outwardly impressive than Paul. But Paul insists that his teaching is not inferior to theirs. In fact, it's better. 
The super apostles might be flashy, persuasive speakers, but Paul has genuine knowledge. He actually teaches the truth. It might not be flashy, but it is true. And it's what the Corinthians need. Paul is the one they need to trust. And so out of godly jealousy for the Corinthians, Paul goes on with his self-defense. Verse 7. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. Paul makes a boast here about self-sacrifice. And he does it to shame the self-seeking. This is a simple but significant indication of who we can trust. Sooner or later, the false servant of God will show that they're really in it for personal gain. And here, as part of his self-defense, Paul is able to say, while I was living among you, I lived a life of self-sacrifice. The details are that when Paul first went to Corinth, he worked as a tent maker. That was his trade. And he shared the gospel with people on the side. Then after there were some conversions and after a bit of time, he began to accept support from other already established churches. He did that to enable him to stop working and share the gospel full time in Corinth. That's what he means in verse 8 when he says, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. That doesn't mean he took money from them against their will. It means he took money which those churches could have been using on themselves. Why did he do that? Why not take money from the Corinthians? Because he wanted the Corinthians to know the gospel isn't something you have to pay for. It's a gracious gift. Paul is not against receiving financial support that frees up his time for ministry. Not at all. But when he first took the gospel into an area, he tended not to accept support from that area. Just to make sure the gospel was understood to be a free gift, not something that you could buy. But it seems that Paul's opponents were saying something very different about Paul's practice. In the ancient world, it was generally accepted that you could tell how good a teacher someone was by the fee they could get for their teaching. The, the better the teacher, the bigger the fee. So, 
If Paul doesn't get any fee for his teaching, what does that say about him? He can't be very good, can he? That's what Paul's opponents seem to be saying. But in self-defense, Paul says, no, I chose to offer the gospel freely. I sacrificed so you could receive the gospel free of charge. No one can ever accuse me of preaching for personal profit. And behind what Paul is saying is the message that by offering the gospel freely, he was really pointing to the Savior who made the ultimate sacrifice for our benefit. He became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. In verse 10, Paul says he will boast about this, his approach of offering the gospel free of charge. Why boast about it? In order to expose the super apostles who were preaching to line their own pockets. In verse 11, he says he will boast in this to cut the ground from under those who want to be considered equal with him. Paul knows the super apostles can't match this boast of his. They can't point to any self-sacrifice in their lives. And they aren't about to start being self-sacrificial. And so to expose them and to protect the church from them, Paul is going to highlight the way he did things. Paul is teaching us that there is a time and place for saying to someone, look at my life. Doesn't my life back up my message? Doesn't it prove that you can trust me? Doesn't it prove that I have your interest at heart? Doesn't it prove that I'm not in this for my own gain? Sometimes we have to be willing to do that. Not in order to elevate ourselves, but to expose those who would lead our brothers and sisters away from Christ. People like that preach for self-promotion. They would never sacrifice for the church. And they need to be exposed for what they are. That's exactly what Paul does in verses 13 to 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Exposing the enemy. Paul is not going on the offensive against these super apostles because he feels inadequate. This is not a personal vendetta. This is not Paul getting his own back on people who are treading on his turf. No, Paul sees these guys for what they really are. Not super apostles, but false apostles. Not men who love the church, but men who are deceiving the church. Not men who are serving Paul's Savior, but men who are servants of Satan. Satan knows that he wouldn't get far in the church by showing his true colors. So he masquerades as an angel of light. He comes subtly to the church, 
in disguise. He tries to lead the church astray subtly. One writer says the arch enemy is an arch deceiver. But Paul finishes by saying these servants of Satan, their end will be what their actions deserve. In other words, they are headed for destruction. And so are you, Corinthians, if you follow them. Well, we might wonder, is this a little bit melodramatic? Is this a little bit far removed from what you and I face? Let's not kid ourselves. Satan is most dangerous when we forget about him. As Christians, we don't need to fear him, but it's a huge mistake to forget about him. Because his usual approach in the church is not to announce himself. It's not to appear on the doorstep wearing his true colors. He dresses as an angel of light. He sends out his workmen with subtle messages. He doesn't come to the church today and say, deny Christ. He says, surely God has his people in other religions too. Surely we need to loosen up just a bit on this exclusive message. And surely we need to update our moral standards a bit. Times have changed, haven't they, since the intolerant times that Paul lived in, or Jesus. Surely, if they were alive today, they'd put things a little bit differently. And hell, well, that's a bit of an insensitive teaching, isn't it? Maybe it's best forgotten about. Because we want to win people to Jesus, don't we? And teaching about a God of judgment, well, that's only going to turn people away. Those kind of messages don't just come from outside the church. There are voices in the church saying the same things. But such men and women are false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And when they raise their voices, when they gain influence, we have a responsibility to expose them for the enemies they are. We ought to be much more vocal against false teachers in the church than against enemies outside the church. False teachers in the church can do a lot more damage. Paul understood the church's marriage covenant to Christ. It's an exclusive relationship. And Paul understood the arch enemy who's trying to seduce the church away from Christ. Paul saw that picture very clearly. And he was prepared to fight to preserve the church's devotion to Christ. And if that involved a bit of boasting in order to discredit the false teachers, then Paul would do it, however awkward it felt to him. You and I might not find ourselves in the same situation as Paul, but we can pray for some of Paul's insight into the enemy. 
We can pray for some of Paul's godly jealousy for the church. We can pray for some of Paul's motivation to seek God's honor in all that he did. Even to make sure that his self-defense was really boasting in the Lord. Let's respond to God's word by boasting in the Lord. As we sing, our God stands like a fortress rock.